Amen. Thank you, Maryland Church. Good to sing with you this morning. Uh, good to be here to pray uh, together as well. Uh, the movie Tombstone is set in the year 1879. Members of an outlaw gang uh, known to wear red sashes called the Cowboys, led by Curly Bill Brocious, ride into a Mexican town where they interrupt a local police officer's wedding. Then they proceed to massacre the assembly, the policeman himself, in retribution for them having killed two of their fellow gang members. Shortly before being shot, a local priest came toward them shouting warnings that their acts of murder and savagery would be avenged, giving references to the biblical fourth horseman. As the cowboy gang all sits down at the wedding feast, Curly Bill, the leader of the gang, asks, Hey, Johnny, what did that man mean? A sick horse is going to come and get us. Johnny Ringo replies, he was quoting the Bible. He says, not me, Revelations. Behold the pale horse, the man who sat on him was death and hell followed with him. Now, you might begin to think if you're watching this movie called Tombstone that it has sort of a, a religious tone, that it's going to tap in religious themes by quoting Revelation chapter 6 verse 8 at the very beginning of the movie. But it's not really the case. In the movie, there is no discussion of Jesus. It's Wyatt Earp who becomes the Savior in the movie. It's Wyatt Earp who fulfills these words later in the movie when he is enraged by announcing, you can tell him, you can tell the cowboys that is, you can tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. Hell's coming with me. Movies, Hollywood, our culture today loves the material that's in the book of Revelation. There is perhaps no more sensational and popular uh, material in the Bible than the figures and the events in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 20. And this would include not just secular Hollywood, but even Christian films love to sensationalize events that are in or that they believe might be in the book of Revelation. Maybe you've seen the series Left Behind or watched the movies or read the books uh, Left Behind where there's an individual uh, named Buck Williams flying in an airline next to an elderly couple and the woman notices that her husband is missing. He's gotten up to go to the bathroom. Apparently, only he's left his clothing behind. The first uh, notice of someone raptured in the movie left behind. And I bring this up to say the sensationalization of the figures and the events in Revelation on screen and in so many other medias... I think means that often our first encounter and some of our only encounter with the figures and the stories, the accounts in Revelation, are from media, from extra-biblical sources that use Revelation 6 through 20 in all kinds of ways. If you want to add a spooky or an eerie tone to your movie, then just quote the all-mysterious and fantastical book of Revelation. 
But Christians, we know that God's Word, that revelation is not there because we need and because we are desperate for entertainment. Revelation is not here because we are bored. We're not here just to be entertained by strange, distant, confusing images. Rather, the book of Revelation is here not to entertain, but to encourage, to be encouraging to Christians by the clear, the clear proclamation of the promises and the assurance of God through Jesus Christ. I started preparing to preach uh, today. My plan was to preach through Revelation chapter 6. And I begin to think, no, I can't really do that without preaching also chapter 7 and the first verses through chapter 8. And then I thought, you know, if I do that, I may as well just preach those, maybe those two sections together. And long story short, today we're going to do an overview, an introduction to Revelation 6 through 20. Kind of a second introduction to this part of the book and what we are about to get into. Revelation 6 through chapter 6 through 20 has the infamous four horsemen in chapter 6, the destruction of the sun and the moon and the earth in chapter 9, the great dragon in chapter 12, those locusts that come out of the bottomless pit that sting like scorpions, death rides on a horse, water turns to blood, people are raised from the dead, and of course in chapter 13 there is the mark of the beast whose number is 666 in chapter 18. The birds of the air are invited to gorge on the flesh of the Babylonians. The images, these are just a few of the many, many images in Revelation chapter 6 through 20, which we are going to be entering starting this week and the subsequent weeks. And this morning, I just want to try to give us a compass by looking at this section of Revelation so that we can kind of navigate these waters for the rest of the book. How, how does it work? What can I expect? What's the main point of Revelation 6 through 20, and how is it structured? Let's pray, and we'll get into God's Word. Father, we love you, we give you praise, and we give you thanks for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, We do not deserve anything good from you, but you have been kind to us. Father, we are so grateful that while we deserve death and hell and judgment, Christ was crucified, his blood shed for our sin, that we might be free from sin, free from eternal wrath, and with you forever. We pray now for this moment, for this word preached to be helpful. We pray, Father, for churches all over as pastors step into pulpits uh, this morning, this very hour, uh, to preach to the saints and to those, anyone who might be hearing. We pray for your power, for your help, for your clarity as we open your word. We love you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to offer a couple of precursors before we begin this morning, before we get into kind of developing a a framework, as we'll call it, for uh, Revelation 6 through 20. First is just an encouragement to read Revelation 6 through 20. Read Revelation 6 through 20. Read all of Revelation But particularly, make sure that you are reading these parts and rereading these parts 
that might seem most confusing at first. I just want to warn you, if you, if you show up on, on Sundays and the only thing you ever hear, you never read Revelation on your own. My hope and my attempt and my goal in preaching Revelation 6 through the end is that it's as clear and succinct and simple enough that a five-year-old can understand. But there will be a level of understanding that you can have that comes from you yourself reading it so that when you hear the word preached, you go, oh, yes, this makes sense. Nathan's not making stuff up, okay? There's no need to make stuff up in the book of Revelation. It's good enough on its own. I just want to remind you what Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says. It, remind, it tells us at the very beginning of the book, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It's not just a blessing to the interpreters or a blessing to seminary graduates or the inductive study guys or the Simeon Trust trainers or the guys who have all their revelation charts all over their bathroom wall. No, blessed are those who hear, who read, hear, and keep what is written. So let me just encourage you, just, just know that Revelation read straight through, it's about an hour and 10 minutes, probably an hour and a half for guys like me. Do you have an hour and a half this week? Do you have a 6 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. time slot one day this week? Or maybe a 15 minutes every morning? Do you have a 7 p.m. to 8.30 night this week? Where you can just say right now in my mind, I'm just going to mark down Tuesday evening and I'm just going to read through this. Let me just encourage you to read through the book of Revelation. It can be kept, it can be heard, it can be read, obeyed, followed, read it, and I think it will help you understand. Second, as a reminder, revelation is meant to reveal. I just want to say this over and over as often as I can through the book of Revelation. It's meant to reveal, not to conceal. The term that we get the word of the, the book from comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to us, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And that word revelation, apocalypto or apocalypse, is where the book gets its name. It just means to reveal. It just means to expose. But so often for us, revelation gets synonymous with weird stuff, specifics about timing, or zombies, depending on where you are in the culture. But the word means reveal. It means re revealing of God's truth. And just hammer that home going forward in Revelation 6 through 20. The goal is to understand and to have things revealed. I love how Vern Poitras says it in his book. He says, can the book of Revelation be understood? He says, yes, it can. Its message can be summarized in one sentence. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. If you read it with that main point in mind, you will be able to understand it. You will not necessarily understand every detail. Neither do I. But it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit spiritually from it. It can be read. It can be understood. It is encouraging to those who are trusting in Christ. And for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to try to provide a simple framework and just kind of an introduction, a, a first dose, if you will, right? The, the, the first shot, we have, before we get to all the subsequent shots later, the boosters, of encouragement 
in Revelation chapter 6 through 20. And I just want to start by saying we, we all know the importance of context. We're going to spend some time this morning kind of putting some context and some framework, some thinking. How's John think about Revelation? How would the first century church think about Revelation 6 through 20? It's kind of like eavesdropping into a conversation. If you just drop into a conversation, you may be able to understand some things and some sentences and some words. But if you want a part of the whole conversation, it's going to sound weird. And you might think people are saying some things that they don't actually mean to say. For example, just listen to this sentence and tell me what you think comes to mind. Tell me in your mind. Don't say it out loud. This sentence, there were explosions and fire shot across the sky. Everyone was screaming. The booms of the cannons pounded one after the other, shaking the very earth beneath our feet. What comes to your mind when I describe that scene? Explosions and fire and people screaming, cannons pounding, shaking the earth beneath your feet. If you're a war veteran, you might have some PTSD. You might be thinking about days in the past where you were down in foxholes and wearing your helmet and ducking for cover. But when I wrote that sentence, I was thinking about July 4th at Fort Hood. Fireworks being shot into the air. Kids and everyone screaming joy and celebration of the, the big booming cannons that were shooting fireworks into the air as everyone grabs another cold drink. It's the same sentence. But it's two very different meanings and sentences, right? That's the importance of context. What are we talking about when these scenes are described through Revelation? Sometimes it can be difficult to discern the context of the book of Revelation. There's a reason people don't just jump in there and study it every day of their lives. It's not always the easiest, right? It's not impossible, but it's not always the easiest. For example, I was reading a commentary this week on Revelation chapter 6, right? The four horsemen. And, and the commentary went something like this. This this part could be a reference to Daniel 7. This part's a reference to Daniel 12. This part's a reference to Ezekiel chapter 4. This part is a reference to Matthew chapter 24. This part is best understood with Romans chapter 11. Those passages exactly. Which, if you're following the Bible, is basically saying Revelation 6 is really hard to understand what you need to do is go get the five other most difficult passages in the Bible and use those to interpret Revelation chapter 6. Like, I'm like, it's not helpful. It's compounding the difficulty. So finding a framework and a context, biblically, theologically, it, it can be difficult. That, that commentary to me sounded like, hey, I hear a lot of people say, as you, you read through Revelation, this is absolutely, certainly true. You, you can't read Revelation without Ezekiel. Or you can't read Revelation without, without Daniel. And, and I think sometimes to the, the rookies of the Bible and, and new people reading through Scripture, like I often feel, it's kind of like sounding, it's kind of like someone saying, listen, you want to learn Greek? You got to understand Chinese. Well, it's just like difficulty upon difficulty. So finding a simple framework, I think it's really important to just get a grasp of where are we going in the book of Revelation. 
up front, you might be wondering uh, what kind of uh, view of Revelation are we going to take in the book of Revelation? And I'll just say it front for anyone who's wondering. We're not going to camp here. I'm not going to uh, make this a big deal in the weeks to come. But if you're tracking and this matters to you, my personal view and the framework that we're going to kind of put forward today comes from what's known as the idealist perspective of Revelation 6 through 20. The idealist perspective. There are typically four ways that people look through of kind of four frameworks that are there for people to look at Revelation 6 through 20. The first one is called preterist. Preterist, or you could just say past if you're taking notes. Generally, the preterist believes that everything in Revelation 6 through 19 or 6 through 20 has already happened and has already passed. The only thing that we're waiting for now is for Christ to return. These were, these were promises and prophecies for the first century church. Those things came true in Rome when Rome fell, and now we are looking for the future final act of Christ's return. Then there's the historicist view, the historical view. Revelation 6 through 20 is happening in a long chronological order. So if you start in chapter 6 and you end in chapter 20, you get a chronology of end-time events between the time of Christ's resurrection and his return. So you might not be able to tell where we are, but there's a chronological progression from chapter 6 through chapter 20. Then there's the futurist view. The futurist view is that Revelation 6 through 20 has really yet to begin. Maybe some birth pangs, as we saw in Matthew chapter 24, some beginnings of, of things. But really, the main events in Revelation 6 through 20 have not even begun to happen. They're all in a distant future to the church right now. And then there's the idealist view, not proudly named as if it's the ideal view, but to describe the nature of the view, that these are ideals, right? That what is in Revelation 6 through 20 is multiple angles, multiple views of the same time period in history. That there are six to eight, depending on how you structure it, references, views, histories of the same time period between Christ resurrection and his return. So if you're wondering what that view is, if you're trying to figure out where we're going to go, that may be helpful today and maybe in the future, but I'm going to try not to make that the main point, to try to defend a camp when it comes to time. That's not our, our main point. In fact, when it comes to time, that really is not the main point of Revelation at all. That is not the primary theme that runs through Revelation. Go with me in your Bibles to what Marilyn read for us to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, Jesus is responding to questions about the end of the age. And Matthew 24 runs a really close parallel track to the events that begin in Revelation chapter 6. So there are multiple people who have done this in different ways, but if you put down the events in order in, in Matthew 24, and then you put down the events as they're given to us in Revelation 6 through 18, they correlate very nicely together, which would, prove, which would mean this is not an accident. 
that they are following one another, at very least in theme, if not in time and history. But I think if we look at Matthew 24, we're going to begin to see that Jesus' main goal in Matthew and in 24 is not to give us a timeline. But that's not even the main goal. The main goal is less about when and more about who and what is coming. Who and what is going to happen in the last age. Matthew chapter 24, pick up in verse 8. As he sat on the Mount Olives, after telling the disciples there's not going to be a stone of the temple left unturned, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Do you hear the question? When? When are these things coming? And what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When? Here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains." Jesus just described the beginning of Revelation 6 and more. But that's just the beginning. And Jesus gives the disciples ways to discern and understand that they are in the end times. And Jesus gives them specific things to look for. But in regards to when the kingdom of Christ is going to be finally consummated, you cannot know. Look a few verses later down in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 42. Now concerning that day, Matthew 24, verse 36, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, here's the point, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Here's how you know that you are in those times, but the time of the coming you cannot know. This is how Revelation 6 through 20 functions as well. Here is how you can know your time, but you cannot know the timing of all God's plans. God is giving us enough to navigate our time in faith, in faith, but not giving us knowledge of all things as, is, as if to remove the need for faith. You can look really quickly in your Bibles in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. A couple of books over. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has resurrected. He has appeared to the disciples in multiple ways. He came and he spent time in those days preaching about the kingdom of God. And then the disciples want to ask the same question 
Again, Acts chapter 6, look in verse 6 through 8. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are like the kids in the back of the apocalypse bus. Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Not, not now. Okay, but now? now? Like, is now the time? Okay. I, I, we waited five minutes. Is now the time? Look what Jesus says. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the running theme through Revelation as well. You can't know the times or seasons the Father has fixed. Nor is it for you to know. But here's what you can know. The Spirit is empowering Christians to spread the gospel all over the earth. So that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are invited to worship and bow down and take the mark and the name of the slain lamb who is at the throne. And God is calling on Christians to endure while he pours out his wrath on the earth, promising that all those who come to Jesus Christ and bow to him and submit to him as Lord and King over all the universe will be saved. See, we're in danger of thinking that Revelation is supposed to undo Matthew 24 and it's supposed to undo Acts chapter 1 when it's actually doing the very same thing. Teaching Christians about their time so they can endure in faith, not giving them, not so, like Revelation is not an eye calendar that you can subscribe to. So that as you read it, you can start putting dates and putting everything in order so you know all things. That's not the revelation that's being revealed. Revelation 6 through 20 works more like a, a farmer's almanac. It, 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 it prophesies seasons and times and weather patterns so that you can know how to navigate the coming year. Yeah, the dates can be pretty darn close in a farmer's almanac. If you might remember that even from last year regarding our January freeze. That's not about getting the dates always exactly right to the week and the day. It's about getting ready for what is to come whenever it may come. It's like this. Imagine that you sent your spouse or your friend a text and said, hey, what time are we going to meet on Friday night? What time are we going to meet on Friday night? And your spouse replies back with a poem. When the sunbeams fade away and the stars come out to play, when the light of the sun is at bay, it will be time to get away. Okay, so what time are we, are we meeting on Friday, right? That's kind of how Revelation works. God, when is the end going to take place? God's answer is, let me tell you a story about how I'm going to secure the saints. That's my answer. When it comes to timing, there's one repeated theme through the book. 
soon, soon, soon. Eight times Christ or John tell us soon. He's coming soon. Let me show you the things that must soon take place. Urgency is the timing. But what is prominent through the book is the how and the who. Go with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, this is the end of that section which begins in chapter 6 with those four horsemen who bring what chapter 6 verse 16 calls the wrath of the Lamb. And we can look at a few places in Revelation to see the overarching emphasis of Revelation so that as we read through chapter 6 through 20, we're trying to make decisions about times and dates and progressions and history that we have a good idea of what the overarching context and framework is. Revelation chapter 7, after the four horsemen come, in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, where the sky is peeled back like a scroll, there is this interlude about the saints. Chapter 7, verse 13 through 17, one of the elders addressed me, saying, that's John, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Through the judgments, in particular, in between the sixth and the seventh seals, which are prescribed and released and cast down to the earth, the question is repeatedly and strategically answered chapter after chapter, where are the saints in all this? Who are God's favored people in all of this? You may be slain. You may go out without food on the earth. You might even face, you know, worst case scenario, awkward moments at work. You might lose your job or your sister or your family. But you will be secure in heaven forever if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Look at another example in Revelation chapter 13. This is that passage which contains the famous mark of the beast. When we preach Revelation, we're going to consider what what the mark of the beast is or isn't. But just look at a repeated structure that happens twice in the book of Revelation. And we see that there's a rhythm and a structure beginning to form. 
Revelation 13, go ahead and read with me verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Again, the idealist perspective is not that this is a chronological event beginning in chapter 6, ending in 20, but that this is another version, another view of history from Christ's resurrection to his return. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And when they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over tribe, over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Every one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must go, quoting Isaiah. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So once you just see the structure of this passage, the order of this passage, the beast rises and is given authority. It's bad. He demands worship of everyone in all tribes, nations, and peoples. If you don't obey him and bow down to him, you'll be slain by the sword. So you are going to need something desperately in these days. And it ain't a calendar. The very end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You see the same structure with the second beast. That beast which requires and demands all his followers take his mark. But look how it ends as well. The beast rises up. It's very bad. He demands worship. If you don't worship him, you're going to pay. But look in Revelation chapter 13, verse 6 through 18. We see a same structure and rhythm here. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Verse 18, why does John share this? What does he want from Christians? This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. We're not going to dive too deep into Revelation 13. We'll be there in weeks to come, but I just want to say up front, this is not a call to make your charts and read the news about Russia and Iran, try to figure out where we are in history. This call for wisdom is a call to use this to navigate the times that you are in. Oh God, give us 
wisdom about the times that we are in. Just this morning, the USA Today published an article online with this title, Some Say the COVID-19 Vaccine is the Mark of the Beast. That was this morning that that was released, and that did not surprise me. I've been in multiple conversations the past couple of weeks, mostly not with those in our church, about whether or not the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And I've talked to several pastors who are talking to their church members about whether or not the vaccine mandate is the mark of the beast, this kind of giving in to the government. If you give in to it, you're giving in to this beast from Revelation 13. I don't think Revelation primarily even teaches us to function this way, to think this way. Instead, what, I, what I'm seeing in the book of Revelation 6 through 20 is seven cycles of judgment and redemption. Some see it arranged as even seven sevens in a row. Seven seals, then the seven trumpets, the seven histories, the seven bowls, the seven judgments on Babylon, the seven promises to the saints, and finally, in the last couple of chapters, the new creation, the new temple, the new eternal people in the garden with God. It's a series of what Jim Hamilton calls recursive versions of history. I think it's a helpful term. It might be a new term. It's the idea that we keep looking at history, the same time period in history, but we're seeing different angles of it. Meaning, for example, I could give you multiple histories about the last 20 years in America. I could give you a history of terrorism in America. And I could take a whole, whole narrative for the last 20 years Winding American history through Afghanistan and Iraq and through New York. I could give you an economic history of America in the last 20 years. And that's probably going to have some things to do with terrorism. But it's going to be its own history. It's going to be about the economy and money and trade and business. I could give you the history of marriage in America in the past 20 years. And it's not going to be about terrorism. It's not going to really be about money. It's going to be about what we think about husband and wife as Americans. I think it's what Revelation is doing in chapters 6 through 20. It's giving us recursive versions of the same time period of history. That Revelation has this structure to it on purpose. It's got a, a rhythm. In fact, I think if you read through these cycles, you'll see that there is a rhythm where there are, at least for the first four or five cycles, there is six judgments, six seals, six bowls, six trumpets, and then there is intentionally between the sixth and the seventh a blessing for the saints. A word about where the saints are and their security. In each cycle right before everything is final and that, that cycle of judgment is complete, there's a blessing for the saints, hope for the saints, a charge to the saints to endure with faith. Drop into the passage about the beast who invites the world to take his mark. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 through 13. And just see how we come to the end of the progression of this judgment, this opposition to the saints, this permitted overcoming even of some of the saints. Revelation chapter 14, look at verse 9 through 13. And we'll see right before God is going to pronounce the end of the beasts, there's this interlude in verse 13. Revelation 14, verse 9, begin there. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image 
and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice, this interlude, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Make sure you put this in there. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, in Christ, from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Blessed are those who are faithful to Jesus Christ in the day of the wrath of the Lamb and the opposition of the beast. Conclusion is if all you get is Jesus wins, trusting him as crucified for our sins, as Jesus raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, who is one day coming back to have his final rule and reign over the earth forever. And you look at Revelation through the lens of that king, that Christ crucified to purchase sinners, you will find Revelation making sense. You get Revelation. I was reading through another commentary this week, and one author spent about 20 pages just talking about Revelation 6 through 20 as a whole. And then I just, I just had to stop and laugh because he was going all over the place. All these references, Daniel and Ezekiel and Genesis and everywhere. And then he got to the very end of this 20-page summary on these 14 chapters in Revelation. And this was his conclusion. So if it gets so bad that you think the Antichrist is going to arise at any moment, if they send you to forced labor camp for re-education, if they break all your teeth with blows to your face, if they take your children and put you to death, God has a plan to save and judge. He will judge justly. He will save those who trust in Jesus. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. That's it. And that's the framework that's reiterated over and over and over intentionally. Judgment, 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 security of the saints. Opposition, 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 opposition. Blessed be the saints. This is the theme, the framework, the context. You may not know the times, you may not even understand all the details, that does not mean that Revelation has turned into a concealing book. It means that that which is revealed is simpler and more straightforward. That those who are in Christ Jesus, the slain lamb who pours out his wrath and secures the saints forever, will be victorious when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us today both understand what you would have for us today and 
be equipped for what we would read this week and be encouraged in what we might face this week. We pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity by your Spirit and help us in heart and mind to apply all that we've heard, preached, read, and even what we've sung this morning. We pray, God, that there are any of us here who are weak in faith, that you would help us be strengthened in faith. Pray, Father, that there's any of us who are, who are weak in obedience, that you would rouse us to affection for you that leads to obedient lives. Are there any who are, are listening and, and do not believe? And we pray that you would help this word, even these chapters, even this part of the Bible, to bring about faith, to bring about sight and hearing. Church, I'll give you just a moment to pray and reflect as we've heard God's word today and we'll sing in just a moment. Father, thank you again for this, your word. We pray that it would be fruitful in our obedience, our steadfastness, and our faith. Father, this week as our faith is tested, we are tempted to cower. We're tempted to be quiet. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe, to trust, and to be bold in each and every one of those moments. We love you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.